Heavenly Father, Father, give us an excitement for the kingdom. In what we study tonight and in the details that we learn, Father, help our minds grasp what is coming and the reality of it and the magnificence of it and the purpose of it. Make those things as real as they will be one day, even now. And in that way, Father, help us have eyes for eternity so that what we care about, what we think about, would be to those things that are lasting and glorifying and not uh, what's in this world, Father, which is going to burn up one day. And we, we live here for a time, for that is your intention as we minister to this world. But, Father, it can't be the place our hearts find home. And we ask, Lord, that the Scriptures remind us of that here tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to finish the temple tour tonight. Last week, we dove into it a little bit at the start. And looking back, I realized probably should have just left it at the introduction last week. You look like you were a deer in headlights as we tried to get into it. More than usual, I guess is what I mean. For some of you, I couldn't tell the difference. But seriously, all right, so you notice things are a little different already because you notice we have a screen up here when we don't normally need one on Tuesday nights. So that's my concession to the reality that walking through a tour in words only is nigh on impossible because you're just going to hear the words and it's not going to make much sense. So tonight is going to be a lot of reading because we're going to get through three chapters, but in the course of that reading we'll stop and rather than exposit verses at a time of detail that you can't really appreciate that way, We'll take more of a big picture view on the screen of, of images, and I've taken images from the web where I think they'll be helpful. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And all of this is available online. All right, let's get into the text tonight. Last week we looked at chapter 40, at least a good part of it. We're going to back up and do it again, only this time with visuals, which will make it better. Last time we started with the question of why we have sacrifice in the Millennial Kingdom, because it's so important understanding why we're even taking time to study about this building in the coming kingdom. As a starting point, you remember we're looking at a period of history. Uh, the, the Millennial Kingdom is the next age. The Millennial Kingdom picks up after the Tribulation, and there's 75 days between the Tribulation and the start of the Kingdom. Daniel tells us that. And then after the 75 days, we start officially counting a thousand years. And the temple that we're studying lives in that thousand-year period. And Ezekiel says Israel will have this new and better temple, something that's never been seen before. So knowing that, let's go back to the main question of last week. Why a temple? And to summarize what we did last week, there's basically three answers to that, three main answers. First, sin always requires a spiritual sacrifice and a physical sacrifice. As long as there is sin on the earth, both of these things will remain true. The spiritual sacrifice is what? Christ. It's not a trick question. If you don't know the answer to the Bible question, what's the answer you can give and be right 90% of the time? Jesus. What is the spiritual sacrifice that covers sin? Of course, that's Christ who died spiritually in our place on the cross. It's a faith act. It's faith in something that happened in the past. It happened at a certain moment in history. And it suffices for all time. Before and after that moment of Christ on the cross, believers place their faith in that historic act done on their behalf. And by our faith in that sacrifice, God credits us with Christ's righteousness. That's our spiritual covering for sin. It reconciles us to God. But in addition to that one-time spiritual sacrifice, there is also the physical sacrifice. Our physical sacrifice is different in all those respects. It happens repeatedly. It happens throughout our lifetime, as long as we possess sin. The physical sacrifice is done in the presence of the Lord so that it may be sanctified as an acknowledgement of sin. Like 1 Samuel said, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. Sacrifice is implicitly acknowledging sin. When you make a personal sacrifice in the presence of God, its purpose is to reconcile you with your brothers and sisters in the body. In a simple sense, it's like going before a judge to pay a traffic fine. The law was the law of Israel. That law had penalties if you violated the law. Where did you pay your penalty? You go to the temple and you make a sacrifice to pay your penalty. It puts you back in good standing with the society that was under that law. But you have to do it in the presence of God. It's the same with the traffic fine. You can't pay the policeman for your traffic fine. You have to go to the judge. You can't give your money to the neighbor and say, I'm paying you because I sped. You have to go to the judge. And that's the same thing in the case of the physical sacrifice. Our 
physical sacrifice has to be done in the presence of our judge, in the presence of God, and in that way it qualifies to put us in good standing with the community of God's people. That's what Jesus said. Remember he said in Matthew 5.23, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there at the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. His point there is that the primary purpose in bringing an offering to the temple in the first place was to reconcile with God's people. So if you come before his presence and yet you have failed to reconcile with somebody who you know has something against you, then you're defying the purpose of the sacrifice. Secondly, it teaches us about Christ. A physical sacrificial system is a daily reminder of the greater spiritual sacrifice made for us by Christ. So in other words, that spiritual sacrifice we put our faith in, which saves us, is impossible to see. It happened at a moment in history that we weren't there. It only happens once. You don't get to see it again. You're trusting in something you can't touch, see, repeat, or experience personally. And so that's why it's faith. But to understand it better, God gives us a physical analog that you can understand. You can understand blood atonement. You can understand that something has to be sacrificed to make payment, uh, a penalty. And the fact that our sacrifices are done routinely reminds us that we need a solution for our sin that's greater than our own because we can't, in our own power, satisfy the requirement of God. And now we move to the kingdom conversation. The Lord has to be in our presence if we're going to set up a physical sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament, it was very easy to understand how this took place, right? It's easy to see with Israel having a law and having a temple, it's easy to see what the process of physical sacrifice would have been. And similarly, now we're learning there's a physical temple in the millennial kingdom, and there's a sacrificial system in the millennial kingdom. So once again, it's easy to understand where the physical sacrifices of that age will have to happen. But what about the church age? What about our time, remember? How do we perform physical sacrifices in the presence of God in this age? Well, well, last week we learned out of Romans 12 that God is dwelling now where? In his people among the Gentiles. Because in this age, Israel is under judgment outside their land and without a temple. And therefore, there is no single physical dwelling place for God's presence on earth. How then can we go into his presence and sacrifice if he is not located in one place on earth? Well, he could have set up a temple for our age, presumably, but if he had done that, he would have had to pick one Gentile nation. And if he had done that, it would have implied that Gentile nation was better than all others. And the chief nation on earth is reserved for one nation only, and it's not a Gentile nation. So he could never have set up a physical temple in this age without violating his covenant with Israel. So what he did instead was he put himself in every believer so that he was literally everywhere all the time. And that doesn't require then that we travel to one place on earth. Wherever we go, we are in his presence. And as such, the nature of our physical sacrifices in this age come very differently than they had in the past or in the way they will in the future. And it's all centered on his presence. Where does he dwell? In the reality that his dwelling is in us, that makes the physical sacrifices of this age about what we do in our bodies, as opposed to what we do with an animal's body in a building. That's the only experience we've ever had. And so it's easy from a New Testament theological point of view to assume that somehow this is the height of God's purpose and that all the other stuff was old and useless and never to be needed and we've arrived to the best that will ever be. The reality is that we are the aberration from the plan overall. That what he has done in the past, he's going to return to in the future when Israel returns. It's all centered on Israel. It's all centered on what is going on with Israel and where is God's presence. It's only because for a season of the history of the earth, he has taken Israel and put them outside their land. That happens to be the season of, the, of history that we live in. Only for that reason are we in this unique dispensation of having the dwelling of God in us. If you've been born at any other season, before or after, you take for granted that God dwells in a building and that's where you go for your physical sacrifice. Well, we get to experience that in a future day. So the Lord sets up residence, and he asks us in this age to make physical sacrifices in our person, in his presence, therefore, because he's in us. And in Romans 12 through 16, remember, that's where you found Paul explaining what the physical sacrifices of the New Testament believer look like. He starts chapter 12 with that quote that we got last week, which was, that we are to make ourselves a living sacrifice, right? 
And that we are not to conform with the world, but rather we are to transform ourselves. And if you go forward from Romans 12 onward to the end of the book, chapter 16, you see a series of commands from various facets of life that Paul says are the living sacrifices that we are to make. They are sacrifices in the realms of everyday life. We can say that the commands Paul gives in those five chapters, they constitute the New Testament sacrificial system for the believer to perform physical sacrifices for our sin. They are acts of love which have the effect of restoring us in fellowship to our fellow believers and to society in general, which has always been the purpose of physical sacrifice. To come before a judge, pay the penalty as it were, and to be restored from the separation that sin created in your society. And it also has the motivation to direct us away from sinning in the future. It also teaches us about Christ's sacrifice, just as the Old Testament system did. Because Christ sacrificed his own interests for the sake of the body of Christ, and we're called to sacrifice our personal interests to crucify our flesh, and in that way make our life a living sacrifice for him. So it's a direct comparison. So no matter when, and this is the point that we move off of, no matter when in history a saint may live, Old Testament, New Testament, etc., there is always going to be a need for spiritual sacrifice and physical sacrifice in that order. You must first have the spiritual sacrifice before the physical makes any difference to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so the kingdom age will be no different. There will be sin in the kingdom age. There will be citizens in that age that will sin, and therefore they must engage in physical sacrifice before the Lord. But because Israel will have returned to a state of glory in their land, regathered in the Lord's presence, he will occupy a physical building again. And because he's in a physical building again, sacrifice takes place only in that building and will take place in the form of animals again. Physical sacrifice made by the sinners. Now, you might think, well, I don't want to go sacrificing animals. It's not what I prefer to do. You won't have to. Why will you not have to? You'll be glorified. We're talking about the sinners of the age. We are part of the government. We're part of those who rule over them. We may even be priests, as far as I know. I can't be sure. But what we won't be doing is performing physical sacrifices because we won't have any sin to atone for. Now, we're going to go back into the description of this temple, knowing that that's its purpose now. It's largely a, a description of architectural features. And as I said earlier, it's kind of a dry discussion, especially in written form, and it's best experienced visually. So we're going to take that tour tonight by picture. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text in large chunks as we move through these next three chapters. And then we're going to be looking at artists' conceptions of the space. I've done the best I can to find something on the web that did an accurate job. I mean, I didn't want to take the time to do it all myself. It would look like stick figures if I tried. But I found one I believe is quite accurate, and the gentleman who did it was very thorough. You know, you're never going to see something that's perfect, but it's going to get close. And the tour, as you remember, starts on the outside and moves inward. We're going to go ahead and start at the top of chapter 40 again. So chapter 40 is where we look at the temple walls, the gates, and the courts. We kind of start from the outside. Then we move to the temple building itself in chapter 41. And then within the, the temple structure, there's a certain area set up for priest quarters, which is chapter 42. Chapter 40, verse 1. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the city was taken, on that same day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there. In the visions of God he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, and on it to the south there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. The man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and give attention to all that I'm going to show you, for you have been brought here in order to show it to you. Declare to the house of Israel all that you will see. And behold, there was a wall on the outside of the temple all around. And in the man's hand was a measuring rod of six cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one rod, and the height one rod. All right, I'm not going to go back through all of what we did in this. I just want to talk about the imagery. Uh, we covered all the other stuff last week. Remember, it starts with a high mountain. This is a feature that rises, and Zechariah 14 tells us this mountain will come up off of a plain. First of all, the mountain's not this big, but if you look at the mountain that Jerusalem sits on today, it's a series of mountains. Actually, if you drive up from the airport, you, you're kind of like going up like you're going to go skiing. It just feels like you kind of go up over one hill, and then you come up, and there's another one, and then finally a high climb to the top. 
Well, this is different. In this day, it's, it's the highest mountain on earth. There's no mountain anywhere on the physical earth that is higher than this one in the day of the kingdom. And it stands above a plain. So the idea is it's like cliffs down to the plain. And then it's flat all around it. There's nothing really to compete with it, anywhere in it. And as you're going to see later in tonight, what sits on top is so big that the top of this is quite broad. It's not a peak. It's a flat top. All right? Uh, there's gates on the outer wall that surrounds the temple. He was standing at the east gate. He meets Ezekiel on the outside of this gate. And uh, he's going to measure things in cubits. And a cubit plus a hand breadth is considered a long cubit. There were different lengths of cubit. This is a long cubit, which is roughly two feet. So if you just want to make it easy on yourself, every time you see a cubit, multiply by two, and that's feet. All right, let's go on. Verse 6. Then he went to the gate, which faced east, went up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one rod in width, and the other threshold was one rod in width. The guard room was one rod long and one rod wide. There were five cubits between the guard rooms, and the threshold of the gate by the porch of the gate facing inward was one rod. Then he measured the porch of the gate facing inward, one rod. He measured the porch of the gate, eight cubits, and its side pillars, two cubits, and the porch of the gate was facing, uh, faced inward. The guard rooms of the gates toward the east numbered three on each side. The three of them had the same measurement. The side pillars also had the same measurement on each side. And he measured the width of the gateway, ten cubits, and the length of the gate, thirteen cubits. There was a barrier wall, one cubit wide, in front of the guard rooms on each side, and the guard rooms were six cubits square on each side. All right, let's look at the gate. You see the gate being a wide entrance with chambers off to the sides leading into a court. And that court is called the outer court, even though it's inside the gate. It's outer because there's another court behind another wall as we go deeper. Now he starts to measure them. The measurements we hear, if I'm just going to translate it for you, the gate is 100 feet long. It's 50 feet wide, has a 10-foot door and a 120-foot porch. Right? This is a large space. And notice that in the measurements, the recurring numbers are going to be 5 and 6. 5 and 6. And I'll show you that in a, in a minute. 5, because you're going to find the walls that separate all these spaces, are half a cubit, 0.5. Half a cubit in width. And 6s will keep showing up because the measurements will be 6 in various areas. The number 5 in the Bible is grace. The symbolic meaning is grace. Six is the number for sinful man. So symbolically, the gate reminds people that this is the place where sin meets grace. The spaces of six where people congregate are divided or broken up by walls of 0.5. So the spaces of sin are broken up by walls of grace. And the, the symbolic sense there would be that sin is broken up here. Finally, the guard, there's guard rooms. Let me go one step further. So... Guard rooms have shuttered or thin gaps in the walls so you can, they can see everywhere. They've got a, a little door that comes up about waist high. And so you've got guards looking out from either side, three on either side. And they've got the ability to look through those little slats to see what's going on around them on either side. We'll come back to the question of guards in a minute. Guards, by the way, remind you that you've got people who are sinners coming in. And sinners don't always do what they're supposed to do, hence the term sinner. All right? And the gate, it says, has a porch that runs along the outside. So there's no porch as you come in. There's a porch as you go out the back, and that porch is held up by pillars. And those pillars have a decoration. We're at verse 13, right? So read from there. Look, he says, He measured the gate from the roof of the one guard room to the roof of the other, a width of 25 cubits from one door to the opposite door. That's your 50 feet. He made the side pillars 60 cubits high. The gate extended round about to the side pillar of the courtyard. From the front of the entrance gate to the front of the inner porch of the gate was 50 cubits. That's your 100 feet length. There were shuttered windows looking toward the guard rooms and toward their side pillars within the gate all around, and likewise for the porches. And there were windows all around, and on either side pillar were palm tree ornaments. Here you have the addition. So this is, as you come in from this side, from the east, you have six cubits for a wall, then a six-cubit space for a guard room, and then six, and then six, and then six. And you see the sixes repeating. That's the number of sin. And then each of these little spaces here that divide them are half cubits. That's five, five, five. So you have one, two, three, four fives 
And then you have 666 is all the way along. All right? But the numbers of 6 and 5 keep showing up to make the emphasis of grace and sin as you come in the gate. Then you saw those posts that hold up the porch on the backside. And these go not just here, but there's a porch that rings all the way around the wall. Not just at the gate, but throughout the edge of the inner wall. There's this porch with these posts holding it up all the way along. But the two posts that sit by the gate have palm ornaments on it so that you can find the exit. Note the gates are marked so that you can see them. You'll see the palm trees. They do the same thing on the gates that go into the inner court. And around them you have the porch. Let's go to verse 17. Then he brought me in to the outer court. So now he's come through this gate. And behold, there were chambers and a pavement made for the court all around. Thirty chambers faced the pavement. The pavement, that is the lower pavement, was by the side of the gates corresponding to the length of the gates. Then he measured the width from the front of the lower gate to the front of the exterior of the inner court, 100 cubits on the east and on the north. So here's what he's saying. You have this outer court that rings the temple building proper. And along the inner side, there are 30 chambers, which seem to limit them to the three of the four walls, because it would seem to be 10 per side. So the backside wall does not have this feature, because the temple pushes up against the backside wall. Okay? This probably served a similar purpose as Solomon's porch in the Temple of Solomon, that Herod made very elaborate, that area of covered porch in the court of the Gentiles. So if you come in the east gate that we just talked about, from here to here is what he just measured. And he said, how long? He said, 100 cubits. So that's how long? 200 feet. So each of these distances is 200 feet. Okay? Then he also goes to the gates on the north and south, and he just confirms for us that they're built the same way. That's what we see in verse 20. As for the gate of the outer court, which faced north, he measured its length and its width. It had three guard rooms on each side, and its side pillars and its porches had the same measurement as the first gate. The length was 50 cubits and the width 25 cubits. Its windows and its porches and its palm tree ornaments had the same measurements as the gate which faced toward the east. And it was reached by seven steps, and its porch was in front of them. The inner court had a gate opposite the gate on the north as well as the gate on the east, and he measured 100 cubits from gate to gate. So he's just saying there are gates that are positioned opposite their respective gates. Then he led me toward the south. Behold, there was a gate toward the south, and he measured its side pillars and its porches according to those same measurements. The gate and its porches had windows all around like those other windows. The length was 50 cubits and the width 25 cubits. There were seven steps going up to it, and its porches were in front of them, and it had palm ornaments on its side pillars, one on each side. The inner court had a gate toward the south, and he measured from gate to gate toward the south 100 cubits. So he's just being very thorough. He did exactly the same thing now for all three gates. Okay? Now he describes the inner complex. So this next passage I'm going to read is long. It goes from 28 all the way to 47. He says, verse 28, Then he brought me to the inner court by the south gate, and he measured the south gate according to those same measurements. Its guard rooms also, its side pillars and its porches were according to those same measurements. And the gate and its porches had windows all around. It was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. There were porches all around, 25 cubits long and 5 cubits wide. Its porches were toward the outer court, and palm tree ornaments were on its side pillars, and its stairway had eight steps. He brought me to the inner court toward the east, and he measured the gate according to those same measurements. Its guard rooms also, its side pillars and its porches were according to those same measurements, and the gate and its porches had windows all around. It was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. Its porches were toward the outer courts, and palm tree ornaments were on its side pillars on each side, and its stairway had eight steps. Then what do you think he's going to do now? And then he brought me to the north gate, and it measured according to those same measurements. With its guard rooms, its side pillars, and its porches, and the gate had windows all around, the length was 50 cubits, and its width 25 cubits. Its side pillars were toward the outer court, and palm tree ornaments were on its side pillars on each side, and its stairway had eight steps. A chamber with its doorway was by the side pillars at the gates. There they rinsed the burnt offering. In the porch of the gate were two tables on each side on which to slaughter the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. On the outer side, as one went up to the gateway toward the north, were two tables, and on the other side of the porch of the gate were two tables. Four tables were on each side next to the gate, or eight tables, on which they slaughter sacrifices. For the burnt offering, there were four tables of hewn stone, a cubit and a half long and a cubit and a half wide and one cubit high, on which they lay the instruments with which they slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice. The double hooks, one handbreadth in length, were installed in the house all around, and on the table was the flesh of the offering. 
From the outside to the inner gate were chambers for the singers in the inner court, one on which was at the side of the north gate with its front toward the south and one on the side of the south gate facing toward the north. He said to me, This is the chamber which faces toward the south intended for the priests who keep charge of the temple, but the chamber which faces toward the north is for the priests who keep charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who, from the sons of Levi, come near to the Lord to minister to him. He measured the court, a perfect square, a hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits wide, and the altar was in front of the temple. All right, so let's just review what we learned here. First, the gates on the inner court are the same design and the same dimension as the outer ones, but they're mirrored. In other words, on this gate, there's nothing on the outside. You just walk straight in. No, no ornaments, no stairs, no nothing. You come out the backside, and you have stairs, seven of them. And those stairs lead you up to a pavement. And you had palm tree branches on the palm tree ornaments, right? Now it gets all reversed. The palm trees are on the entrance. The stairs are on the entrance. There's no stairs on the backside. Okay, so it's of similar design, just mirrored to one another. All right, that's what he took time to explain. And then, as he moves in that entrance, he mentions there are tables, a total of eight tables that are set up for sacrifice. In some interpretations, there are four on the inside and four on the outside. In other words, four here and four over here. And then you walk through a similar-sized gate, as you did in the first case. He says that there are animals being sacrificed on these tables and that there was actually flesh present. So for anyone who might have assumed, well, we may have a temple, but we're not actually going to be killing animals again, the text is abundantly clear that there will be sacrifice again for all the same reasons it was before. Uh, and you have dressing tables for the animals and so on. And then you have inside this space, you have space for singers and priests. And the priests, in the case of those who officiate at the altar, are those who descend from the sons of Zadok. So what that must suggest is these are saved, glorified Jews who can trace their ancestry to Zadok. And they are honored in this way because he was the faithful priest who stayed loyal to David and later to Solomon in their day. His sons will be the kingdom priests in the temple. Now what's interesting, of course, is that in the temple, glorified people aren't dying. So we don't have to worry about... They can literally be the priests for the whole millennial kingdom. We don't need to replace them. They're not going to only be there for a while, and then we've got to have their sons do it. No, it's just the ones who come from Zadok, all of them will be there. It's not like they're going to be born there. They're all coming in on day one. It's one of the more interesting aspects of the kingdom that we'll have to kind of get used to, which is the idea that everyone's there on day one. Everyone who is to be there, in terms of the glorified, they're all there on day one. And so whatever jobs you get, they have it for the whole time. There's no unemployment. Everybody just... Talk about tenure. That's serious tenure. That's a reminder of the faithfulness that you show now has potential for reward in the kingdom. I assure you that Zadok, in his time under David and Solomon, probably did not realize the degree of honor that his faithfulness could achieve in the kingdom, right? For his family. Finally, Ezekiel gives us the dimensions of the inner court at the very end there. He said it's, using our measurements, it's a square 200 feet. So this is a 200 feet area, square. All right? And then there's a wide porch, it says, leading up to the temple, which is where we're going right here. So verse 48, Then he brought me to the porch of the temple and measured each side pillar of the porch, five cubits on each side, and the width of the gate was three cubits on each side. The length of the porch was 20 cubits and the width 11 cubits. And on the stairway by which it was ascended were columns belonging to the side pillars, one on each side. All right, so we're going to go up those steps there. Here's an overview of what we're studying, and then we're going to go look inside the temple proper. So let's go to the tour now, the tour of the temple. This is the doorway going into the temple proper. 40 feet long as you go in, 22 feet across. We're already in chapter 41 now. Here we are, verse 1. Then he brought me to the nave and measured the side pillars. Six cubits wide on each side was the width of the side pillar. The width of the entrance was ten cubits, and the side of the entrances were five cubits on each side. He measured the length of the nave, forty cubits, and the width, twenty cubits. Then he went inside and measured each side pillar of the doorway, two cubits, and the doorway, six cubits high, and the width of the doorway, seven cubits. He measured its length, 20 cubits, and width, 20 cubits, before the nave. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. Then he measured the wall of the temple. 
six cubits, and the width of the side chambers, four cubits all around, about the house on every side. The side chambers were in three stories, one above another, and thirty in each story. The side chambers extended to the wall, which stood on their inward side all around, that they might be fastened and not be fastened into the wall of the temple itself. The side chambers surrounding the temple were wider at each successive story because the structure surrounding the temple went upwards by stages on all sides of the temple. Therefore, the width of the temple increased as it went higher, and thus one went up from the lowest story to the highest by way of the second story. I saw also that the house had a raised platform all around. The foundations of the side chambers were a full rod of six long cubits in height. The thickness of the outer wall of the side chamber was five cubits, but the free space between the side chambers belonging to the temple and the outer chambers was 20 cubits in width all around the temple on every side. The doorways of the side chambers toward the free space consisted of one doorway toward the north and another doorway toward the south, and the width of the free space was five cubits all around. The building that was in front of the separate area at the side toward the west was 70 cubits wide, and the wall of the building was five cubits thick all around, and its length was 90 cubits. All right. So Ezekiel's describing first the entrance with its tall doorposts, which are 12 feet square. And so that leads in through a 12-foot long doorway, and then it leads into the holy place, the first space, which is 40 by 80 feet. So you come in through that initial threshold. Here's your 12 by 12 walls or uh, posts. And as you go past that point, you're going to go into the holy place, coming in from the left, And obviously there's no furniture in here yet. There's only the small altar, which he talks about here in a minute. But there's no furniture mentioned anywhere in Ezekiel. So we don't know if there will be in the the time to come, but there's nothing there at this stage. All right, now we're going to look at some of the measurements he gave and some of the descriptions. I told you the walls not being fastened to themselves in three stories and changing in width and all that. It's very architectural. It's like he's describing blueprints. So we need to look at them to really understand them. So the Holy of Holies is 40 feet square and empty at this point. Now here's the construction of the outer walls. And I have some numbers. There's numbers here, and I'm going to tell you what these numbers mean as we go. And I'm going to compare it to the verses we read. If you want to make notes, maybe put some of these little numbers next to your verses on your Bible, then maybe that'll help you later. Um, So in verses 5 through 7, he was discussing how the outside walls narrow... As you go higher, there's a wooden side building or chambers that are built around the outside of the temple building in a three-story structure. It's not affixed to the temple. It's freestanding next to the temple. And as the temple walls are getting narrower going up, then the wood is getting thicker going up so that on the outside of the building, it's a straight line. Follow it? So... He says it's a three-story structure, a total of 30 rooms per story. So as the wall gets thinner, the wood gets thicker. Follow? The chambers sit against the wall, but they're not physically attached with nails or bolts to the brick, if you will. So this wood is not physically attached. It's set up in this arrangement so that it can be freestanding and stable because it's going to be naturally coming against the wall in the way that it's built. Verses 8 through 11, he describes the platform and walls immediately around the temple. He says the foundation is raised six cubits off the court level. You see how you have six cubits higher for the foundation than the court level. The wall surrounding the temple, he says, is ten feet thick. That leaves a ten-foot walkway. And then in verse 10, we find that on the outside of that wall is another area of 40 feet. It's called the separate area, or the separate place. And it extends all around the other three sides of the temple. So over here, 8 goes all the way around the temple, and it's a space of 40 feet going outward. And then lastly, in verse 11, you hear that there are 10-foot doors leading into the side chambers. All right? That's what you just learned. Verse 12. All right. In verse 12, it said that the separate area leads to a west building that's behind the temple. That's verse 12. 
And then there's a building that sits directly behind the temple called the West Building because it's in the it's west of the temple. Uh, the West Building is 180 by 140 feet with a 10-foot wall, and so the total dimensions, if you add the walls, is 200 by 160. If you add the separate space that's right in front of it, it's a perfect 200 feet square. All right, so now we're going to zoom out for the total dimensions of the temple. All right, that's verse 13. Then he measured the temple, 100 cubits long. The separate area with the buildings and its walls are also 100 cubits long. Also, the width of the front of the temple and that of the separate areas along the east side totaled 100 cubits. He measured the length of the building along the front of the separated area behind it, with a galley on either side, 100 cubits. He also measured the inner nave and the porches of the court. The thresholds, the lattice windows, and the galleries roundabout, their three stories opposite the threshold, were paneled with wood all around, and from the ground to the windows, but the windows were covered. Over the entrance and to the inner house, and on the outside, and on all the wall around, inside and outside, by measurement. From the entrance to the west building, you have a total of five twenties, for a total of 100 cubits, or 200 feet. And then the separate space plus the west building behind it is another 200 feet, or 100 cubits. That's another 520s. In verse 14, he measures north to south, and he finds a total of five more 20s. And then in verse 15, he measures the length of the separate spaces, and they're, of course, 100 cubits each. And on the outside of these structures, is we're told they're all paneled in wood from the ground to the windows. All right, so this is just giving an overview of the size, and the dimensions are all so very thoughtfully put together to get all these even numbers, right? including the thickness of walls. All right, from here, you go back inside the temple to see some of the details of the construction. Not a lot. There wasn't any furniture, for example, but there are some things. Uh, verse 18, he says, It was carved with cherubim and palm trees, and a palm tree was between cherubim and cherub, and the cherub had two faces. A man's face toward the palm tree on one side and a lion's face toward the palm tree on the other side. And they were carved on all the house all round. From the ground to above the entrance, cherubim and palm trees were carved as well as on the wall of the nave. The doorposts of the nave were square. As for the front of the sanctuary, the appearance of one doorpost was like that of the other. The altar was of wood, three cubits high and its length two cubits. Its corners, its base and its sides were of wood. And he said to me, this is the table that is before the Lord. The nave and the sanctuary each had a double door. Each of the doors had two leaves, two swinging doors, two leaves for one door and two leaves for the other. Also, there were carved on them, on the doors of the nave, cherubim and palm trees like those carved on the walls, and there was a threshold of wood on the front of the porch outside. There were lattice windows and palm trees on one side and on the other, on the sides of the porch. Thus were the side chambers of the house and the thresholds. All right, we don't know for sure what this looks like, of course, but this is an artist's description. Now, what's interesting about this description is that the cherubim have two faces, not four. Now, that makes some sense because you're carving in a two-dimensional space, so at best you could see maybe three, but the way it's represented is two. So it's not clear whether that's simply an artistic choice on the part of God in the way it's portrayed, or if it's representing some kind of new cherub we haven't seen elsewhere, because it's different, of course, than the ones we saw earlier in the book. Earlier you had a foreface, right? So here you have man and lion, but they're missing ox and eagle. Um, so it's a bit of a mystery. The palm tree is a symbol of Israel. It's also a symbol of life rising up out of a barren place, so of, of blessing in that general sense. Cherubim are guardians of God's glory. But when you interpose two-faced cherubim and palm trees in the way that it's done here, that, that really opens up a lot of speculation, of course, but the specific meaning just is not clear, and I don't have any answer for you, unfortunately, uh, as to what's being communicated in that way. There's people out there who guess, and you can go read their guesses like I did, but no one showed me anything in the text that convinced me they knew what they were talking about. Um, in the center, you have that small wooden altar that's before the, the table before the Lord. So that would tell us, if that's the table before the Lord, where is the Lord going to be? He's going to be in there, which is what we've said all along. We'll see that in chapter 43. His entry, in other words. But that is where the Lord will be. You know, he doesn't show up with his, with his key card and clock in at 9 a.m. and then clock out on his way home. That's where he lives 24-7. That's the only place on earth for the entirety of the thousand-year reign that Jesus will be, period. How often will you see him? 
Well, unless you're a priest that gets to that point in the temple, never. The answer is never. So the physical Christ, there's not, we've said this multiple times in this class, I just want to reiterate it. The temple construction itself makes clear that you will not see Jesus unless you are standing at that spot. And I dare to say that's probably not a spot that most people in the kingdom will stand. So we will not see him. Now, as I said, glorified individuals in the kingdom, we've talked about this earlier, we have an intimacy with Christ that doesn't require his physical presence. We hear his thoughts, he communicates to us effortlessly and instantly, no matter where we are on the globe. That's what we read earlier in an earlier week from Isaiah. So it's not necessary that we walk up to him like I walk up to you now to get information or text you or whatever. It's, it's telepathic, it seems. And that takes away any concern about whether we can see him or not. All right, so that's, that's the way we live with him in that age. Uh, we also heard about doors. Uh, the doors you see there, they're kind of set up like the doors you have on old-fashioned closets, like accordion style, it seems. Swinging doors, two on either side, he says, that close over that. It's the same kind of doors that were on the opening of the temple itself. When we looked at the original entrance, they had similar doors set up there. All right, that's chapter 41. Now, chapter 42, we are going to read uh, chapter 42 pretty quickly. We're looking here at priestly chambers, and it's just a lot of architecture, but I'll read through it quickly. Verse 1. Then he brought me out into the outer court, the way toward the north, and he brought me to the chamber which was opposite the separate area and opposite the building toward the north. Along the length, which was 100 cubits, was the north door. The width was 50 cubits. Opposite the 20 cubits, which belonged to the inner court, and opposite the pavement, which belonged to the outer court, was a gallery corresponding to gallery in three stories. Before the chambers was an inner walk, 10 cubits wide, a way of 100 cubits, and their openings were on the north. Now the upper chambers were smaller because the galleries took more space away from them than the lower one, the middle ones in the building. For they were in three stories and had no pillars like the pillars of the courts. Therefore the upper chambers were set back from the ground upward more than the lower and middle ones. As for the outer wall by the side of the chambers toward the outer court facing the chambers, its length was 50 cubits. For the length of the chambers which were in the outer courts were 50 cubits. And behold, the length of those facing the temple was 100 cubits. So he says, this is 50 cubits. This is 100 cubits, okay? One's longer than the other. Below these chambers was the entrance on the east side as one enters them from the outer court. In the thickness of the wall of the court toward the east, facing the separate area and facing the building, there were chambers. The way in front of them was like the appearance of the chambers which were on the north, according to their length, so that they were, so was their width. And all their exits were both according to their arrangements and openings. Corresponding to the openings of the chambers, which were toward the south, was an opening at the head of the way. The way in front of the wall toward the east as one enters them. Then he said to me, The north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separate area, they are the holy chambers where the priests who are near to the Lord shall eat the most holy things. There they shall lay the most holy things, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, for the place is holy. When the priests enter, they shall not go out into the outer court from the sanctuary without laying there the garments in which they minister, for they are holy. They shall put on other garments. Then they shall approach that which is for the people. These are for the priests to come in and out. This is where they, among other things, this is separate only for them. These are holy chambers. This is where they eat the most holy things. Remember the priests were able to eat the the showbread after so much time. They could eat the fat offerings and so on. Um, This is where they prepare the offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. This is where they put on their priestly garments and they have to change again. They probably have lockers, I guess. And they take off their priestly garments before they go out. So they, have to, they go in here and they get ready. And that's, this is where they'll come out as they come into the temple proper. So this is where they emerge, is in this space. But then they have these galleries of some kind where they're going to actually be able to change, do what they do. Okay, And then they can exit and join the people in the outer court without looking like a priest. All right? they, they go off duty. All right? uh, just to give you the dimensions, it's, again, 50 cubits plus another 100 cubits between the two lengths there. Um, in verses 9 through 12, he describes the entrance that leads from the outer court westward into the gallery between those tiered galleries, and that's how they get in and out, as I just mentioned. Um, now he exits the temple compound, and he begins to measure the outer perimeter. Now we're going to go completely outside, and this is where it gets a little interesting, because he says, this is the end of 42, and the last I'm going to read tonight, but there's a bit of mystery connected to this. He says in verse 15, When he had finished measuring the inner house, he brought me out by the way of the gate which faced toward east. 
So he just left the temple compound proper, the whole, the whole thing, went out the east gate. And he says, and measured it all around. He measured on the east side with the measuring reed, 500 reeds by the measuring reed. He measured on the north side 500 reeds by the measuring reed. On the south side, he measured 500 reeds by the, with the measuring reed. He turned to the west side and measured 500 reeds with the measuring reed. He measured it on the four sides. It had a wall all around, the length 500 and the width 500 to divide between the holy and the profane. So a simple reading of that passage would make it sound as if he just finished measuring the outside wall of the temple. Right? And... We have already, of course, specific measurements on everything that's inside that wall. Based on the internal measurements, which we've already gone through, you should find then that the outer wall is 500 cubits square, all right? which is 1,000 feet square, which is about a three-quarter mile circumference if you walked around it. Okay? But the text we just read says something else. Ezekiel says the measurement was 500 reeds, not 500 cubits. And a cubit is one part of that stick. The reed is the whole stick. And there are six cubits in a reed. So, in effect, he says that each side of this wall is 3,000 cubits, which would make it 6,000 feet, or over a mile in each direction, over a square mile. If, indeed, that's what he means, then he's either measuring another wall outside the original one, or it's just open space, like no man's land. Um, notice in verse 20, he says this, is, this area that he just measured is a barrier between the holy and the profane. So it could be in reference to a no man's land. He does mention a wall, though, so maybe there's this outer wall that's built even further out from the one that we walk in through the gates that he just didn't say any more about. Others simply think it's a scribe's error and it should have been saying cubits the whole time. The problem with that is that he mentions read over and over and over. So you'd have to say a scribe didn't just make a copy error. He, can, he intentionally changed the word everywhere that it appeared. That's very unlike uh, Jewish scribes. That's, that would be a, a strange thing. Because even if one guy thought he could get away with that, there's other copies, there's other scribes, that would have been double-checked and fixed. It's rare that you see an error of that degree carry through. So what you might find is what he's saying is, here's the temple compound as we just saw it measured. And then there's just another outer wall that just goes even further out, making for a full square mile or more of space devoted to what is the compound and the inner wall. And that's just an extra buffer between the holy and the profane. Here's a comparison. I gave you this chart last week. Here's the comparison then. This does not include the one-mile square barrier. So put a one-mile square barrier. This represents 0.2 of a mile. So the wall that goes around this would be five of these in each direction, right? But just to give you, here's a football field. And if you've been in a football, you know, football stadium and football fields are, you know, decent size, that's just a little section of this, of what we're going to... In fact, the whole temple itself is about the size of a football field. Temple meaning the, the, the court around it in the temple, all right? So what do we learn from all this to finish up tonight? Well, first... The precision of all the measurements and the exactness of the relationships, like we saw earlier, the twos and the fives adding up and everything kind of coming together, it means that it's almost impossible to imagine someone like Ezekiel in his day inventing all of this without drafting tools, without software. I mean, you know, given enough time, he probably could have worked out the math, but it's so precise, the numbers have so much consistency, the degree of specificity on the walls of the temple and the, the, the way he has it all terraced and everything else, just, it starts to defy belief that that's all just been made up. People who make things up typically aren't that precise about it. They're not that worried about precision. They'll gloss over the details. All right? it, what it suggests is this is a real building. It removes any suggestion, by the way, that you would interpret this metaphorically or symbolically. The, exegetically speaking, if you try to go to this and say, well, it's not a real building, this isn't really going to exist, this is some kind of picture, this is, well, you'd have a hard time explaining why there's so much detail, because that's not how parables and metaphors work. It's clearly a literal description of a real structure, and one unlike anything that's ever existed. So it's, it's yet to come. Second thing we learn, 
If you had the patience to study every dimension and its relationship to every other dimension, you would probably, almost certainly, find an incredible layering of meaning in the design. You, you probably know that many have done that kind of exhaustive analysis on the original tabernacle and its design and the meanings of all the details in that. And you probably had people teach you a little bit about how the symbols have all this embedded meaning. Well, we've been studying that tabernacle for centuries with that mindset, but there has not been, to my knowledge, a similar level of effort at studying this one. And I would imagine that there are many, many more discoveries waiting for us in the details of this building, uh, especially with so many measurements to consider, uh, if we had the time and took the time. And thirdly, the size of the temple. Well, what that reflects, if you consider how big this thing is, it reflects how millions of people are going to have to stream to this place from all over the world. This temple will be for all humanity, not just the Jewish people. And that reinforces the truth that Israel is the center of the world, the center of worship, and the center of government in the time of the kingdom. They needed something this big to accommodate everyone who's showing up. And then finally... The reality of an operating temple on this scale, priests, guards, animals, and the like, reminds us of just how prevalent sin will be in the kingdom. We will be above it all, we'll be ruling, but we will see it all. And because of Christ's perfect rule, the effect of sin in that age will be greatly mitigated and controlled. But it will still be there in the world, which will make Christ's perfect rule all the more amazing to watch at work. And our role in the government all that much more important in support of that work. All right, next time we come, we study how the glory of God returns and the sacrificial system that follows. All right, in chapters 43 through 46. All right, let's pray briefly, and then for those who can stay, we'll, we'll do some Q&A. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us, Father, a preview of things that you uh, had no uh, necessity to do. We could have been just as happy to know we have the kingdom coming and, and know none of these details. But, Father, you, in your love, you have shown us so much more. And I pray, Father, it will give us a heart that longs to be there that much more and sees it as that much more real and won't let the world now convince us that the things that are here matter more. Thank you, Father, for the knowledge. Let us use it in some way that might encourage or teach someone else about you and about what's planned for our future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.